You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hello, hi, I'm Bronwyn Williams Hello. again, and we're back with The Small Print. Today I'm talking to a rather interesting character, Arlen Colwick, who is a philosopher and a developer and a musician, amongst many other things. But before I steal that thunder, let me hand over to Arlen to introduce himself the way he would like to be introduced. Hello, it's a privilege to be on the show. Um, I didn't think about how I would like to introduce myself. Um, so I, I'll pretty much leave it at what you said, with the exception that I'm a very lousy developer. Um, I, I design protocols and other types of software system, but um, it's best left to quality, talented coders to, to build things and not for me to do that. But yeah, I guess the rest is more or less what I do. Okay, so anyway, the reason why we wanted to have this conversation is because in one of our previous episodes, we were looking at the importance of opening up, up our physical borders in order to stimulate economic growth and to facilitate progress for humanity at large and for South Africa and Africa in particular. So we're looking at that immigration, immigration question and the flows of people and ideas across borders. But that, of course, opens up the next layer of the conversation, which is an open exchange of information over the digital sphere, over the medium and over the message that is controlling so much of our lives. And right now, a lot of that is under threat. The open internet seems to have peaked from my perspective, and I'm sure there's many people who would agree. It's fragmenting, there's things like the splinternet is taking place, there's different regionalized, different nationalized versions of the internet, all of which have their own different firewalls. It seems like in a lot of areas, things like freedom of speech and freedom of flows of information, both from an infrastructure layer and from a what we are allowed to say across that infrastructure perspective, does seem to be re-balkanizing. So although we can talk about opening up our physical borders with things like the African Union, at the same time, a lot of those invisible borders are snapping shut. And for an extreme case there, we can look at what's happening in China with what I like to call the, the Wi-Fi curtain, which is a whole lot tighter than the Berlin Wall or the Iron Curtain ever was, because it's talking about like a lot stronger control over both the physical and the digital layers of citizens' lives. So I want to speak to Arlen about his work and what's going on with the blocknet and what's going on in the crypto space when it comes to trying to reopen up the internet or at least the way we connect with each other to build a freer society once again so we can get back a lot of those productivity gains that come from things like globalization and free flows of information. So I think to start off with, maybe Arlen, you can just tell everyone a little bit about the projects you're involved with right now and how you got to be involved in them from that perspective of reopening up information flows and society. All right. Right now, um, I'm one of the founders of the BlockNet. Uh, the BlockNet came about through a number of conversations about what a decentralized internet would look like. Um, and these were kind of protocol or system level conversations rather than um, conversations about what freedoms we would like and you know how to get them directly. It was more about just how to actually achieve something that is uh, decentralized. Um, so the BlockNet is inter-blockchain infrastructure. So it turns out there are several thousand blockchains in existence. It's not just Bitcoin and Ethereum. And a lot of them do amazing things, but they don't speak to each other natively. Um, it's 
really not easy at all to get this to happen. Um, because I think you can think of a blockchain as a little bit like it, its own state or its own jurisdiction, where the rules and the other goings on inside uh, on any one blockchain just aren't provable or knowable on other blockchains by themselves. You need, you need to build something else to connect them. So I think the analogy we had is that it's a little bit as if we're still in a time where the internet didn't exist, but there were a lot of local area networks that you could join. And once you were on one of those, you weren't on any of the other ones. Um, and there was just no system to connect them together. Um, so our, our technology, broadly speaking, does that. Now, uh, I guess um, the bigger picture for, you know, in, in the context of, of your introduction is um, we don't, we don't want a world where a few monopolies hold all the power. Um, and I think the broader backdrop is framed by the question, well, why is it even possible for these colossal monopolies to hold most of the power? Um, and I think it was because the original internet or the current architecture of the internet was um, kind of a bit happy-go-lucky in a certain way. Um, it sort of was built as if people just would be nice. Um, but unfortunately, not everybody is nice and it doesn't take more than a very small percentage of people being not nice to make a massive mess for the world, which is why there is such a, a thing as the open internet movement and why, <laughs> why anyone's protesting at all. It's that we didn't defend the important aspects that really matter to us, which only now we're acquiring the means to defend. And I guess the blocknet is at most a small piece of that puzzle, um, which is a way of preserving self-sovereign existence on the internet. Um, and that includes all the services that now run over the internet. So in other words, quite a lot of life. Yeah, so, so you spoke about how we kind of at the place now with the decentralized blockchain-based internet where Tim Berners-Lee was starting to work when he was trying to develop the protocol for the World Wide Web, right? Am I correct in sort of making that analogy yeah. as to where you kind of are right now? So, of course, the ideology and the ideas behind that original open web, worldwide web, were very altruistic and they were very big and very bold. But a lot of those core principles have really been eroded and very, very quickly over the last sort of 12 to 13 months in light of what's yeah. happened with the world, in light of the rise of things like fake news and unpopular populist politicians. There seems to have been a lot of a pushback on those very liberal values that the, the internet as we know it today have been founded upon. So what do you think can be done to make this new internet that you're building more resilient against being re-balkanized and against becoming closed in the next 20 to 30 years when this project that you're working on becomes more mature? And in fact, it could happen a lot faster because I think people will have a residual memory as to what went wrong with the first version of the internet. That's a big question. I, I'm not sure what level to answer it at. Um, but anyway, we'll unpack My it. first impulse is to get into protocols and coordination problems, but that's the deep end. And I'm not so sure that works for anyone. 
Um, but you can so, do that. Of course, protocols are just incentives, right, at the end of the day. It's the rules of, of a game. And I think that a lot of the, the reasons why we have trouble with the current internet is because our current rules are too easy to game or they are too restrictive or they just keep on being changed in place. So I don't think it's a too yeah. complicated place to start if you want to start there. I suppose just a case of trying right. to find words that simplify the concepts for people that aren't familiar with it. my best. Um, well, I, I guess to me, um, right now there's this interesting set of um, inconsistent interests. People want privacy increasingly. Um, I'm thinking, for example, about this recent uproar about WhatsApp and the, the policy wording change. Um, people also want freedom, um, uh, or freedoms of various kinds, but um, it's not simple to do both. Um, generally, with a whole bunch of freedom along the lines of, say, TCP/IP, the Internet Protocol, um, you don't get privacy. You just have everything in public, and well, that's an that's an issue. Um, then, I guess the immediate question, um, especially when you're thinking about privacy but also freedom, is well, why is a third party whose incentives need not uh, often don't align with mine? Um, controlling or um, it, it's at least in certain ways able to control my messaging or my online interactions or purchases or anything else. Why, why do we have this and why is it necessary? Um, and I guess there's another whole different problem to solve. How do we do things that don't involve third parties who ins whose incentives need not align with ours? Um, so I've sketched three things so far, all of which I understand need to work nicely together in a way that um, that makes sense for the purposes people want to put the internet to. Um, and it needs to be done in a way that is kind of bulletproof, in the same way that Bitcoin is bulletproof. Uh, for example, nobody knows how to bring the network down. Nobody knows how to print Bitcoins illicitly. Um, it's just going to work. And that, to me, is a, a kind of a minimum standard for a decentralized new type of internet. Um, now, I hope that sketch was perspective-giving enough to get into some protocols. Um, I would Great say, um, let's talk about what a blockchain can do and what a blockchain can't do, because this is a, a useful inroad, I think. I'm guessing quite a lot of your listeners um, don't really know how a blockchain works. It might even be helpful in that respect. Um, a blockchain is quite simple in a way. It's it's about um, it's a way of reaching agreement about any given data set. So you could you could have a blockchain like Bitcoin that reaches agreement about what transactions count and what, which ones don't. That's just all it does. It's just a one-purpose thing. Um, you could have, you know, more complicated blockchains like Ethereum, um, which allow you to write all kinds of stuff because their scripting language is more expressive. So you, in principle, you could write any kind of contract, although in practice, that's really hard. Um, now that allows um, the Ethereum blockchain to reach agreement about state changes to a contract. So for example, if you have some agreement with somebody and then you, you perform an action that is relevant to the contract, the contract needs to pick that up and then change its state so that 
on the blockchain, that state change is now reflected and everyone's come to agree that the state change was licit. And then on it goes. Uh, I guess what I'm getting to is um, if you want to use a blockchain, that's what it's for. Um, and it doesn't tend to make sense to use one unless you're using a blockchain that's public infrastructure. These these things are, it, kind of, it sounds weird, but these things in some sense are the socialists' absolute dream. They could, like, you could not, you could not have a more useful tool from this perspective because you can kind of plan economies with this type of thing, right? You could have a bunch of machines <laughs> that no one can manipulate well, in a perfect world. There are all these minor little things that can go wrong. But they basically are kind of inviolable, bulletproof, and perform their function in ways that anyone can check and can prove to themselves has been done properly. Um, this is what's known as trustlessness. So you don't need to trust um, some third party to perform something honestly or to have good intentions. You just take a look at how, how the protocol is coded and they, then you can pretty much guarantee yourself that the outcome will be what it says it will be. Um, blockchains are useful for that. Um, and that's really cool, right? Because that covers any uh, law-like interaction between human beings. So all contracts done, right? Amazing. You can write all kinds of interesting things. Um, and that can feed into interesting areas. Like, let's say something that might sound far-fetched, like um, instant messaging or something. Um, you can implement a system, not that it's necessarily optimal to do it, but you could, where um, in order to interact with someone, they need to give their permission. There's no sort of phone book or something. There's no, well, there might be one, but not one that spills your phone number to the public. Um, it might be something where you essentially engage in a type of blockchain-powered contract that um, then in a sort of immutable, bulletproof way um, gives you permission to speak to the other person. And that could all be done without users needing to know how it works or what's actually going on. But it will it will be able to enforce those freedoms and that consent in a very strong way, which I find quite beautiful. Um, yeah, now, I guess when it comes to the contrast or the conflict between freedom and openness, um, this, I think, is an area where not specifically blockchains come into it, but cryptography for sure. Um, a simple example of how this stuff can work really well is the concept of a digital signature. Um, digital signatures allow you to never reveal your secrets. Um, so instead of signing into Facebook or Twitter, where you enter your password and if you're sensible, a two-factor authenticated code as well, um, you store a secret and you never give away that secret. You never enter it anywhere. And um, what it does is some complicated mathematics on, on that secret to construct a signature that anyone can verify as authentic on the basis of something else known as a public key that you do publicize. So I could, for example, generate a public key, put it on my website or something. Um, and if anyone wants to see whether I've done something, then what I would need to do is digitally sign that action and they could go and, and, and verify the signature against the public key that I've already published and that they have no reason to believe isn't 
me publishing it or wasn't me publishing it. Um, so that's quite nice, right? It gets it gets us the ability to do all kinds of things without um, without giving away our secrets. We can keep secret what we want secret, um, and then we can act in an equally self-sovereign way to how most blockchain interactions work, um, while you know not disclosing what we don't want to disclose. So I could, um, in the same way as something like Signal works, um, I can choose who to disclose something to, and no one else is going to get that. Unless, of course, the person I've trusted with information then goes and publishes it somewhere else. But provided my uh, assumptions are good and nothing nasty happens, then you really can look after your freedoms and your secrets very well. Um, yeah, that's a sort of a fairly long uh, sketch of how these sorts of things work. These are These are sort of individual separable tools that could be cobbled together in many, many different ways to create the type of decentralized internet that, um, that I think a lot of people have seen that we really need. Yes, I suppose just to take it back a step to kind of summarize the, the point or the difference between the decentralized internet and the internet that we know today. The internet that we know today does have some single points of failure and it is vulnerable to single points of control. So even the internet that we have has those seven key keepers that are able to shut us down if they all get together. Yeah. That's a pretty big vulnerability considering there's like seven billion human beings using the internet and seven of them, just seven, that's like one out of every yeah. billion has the ability to take down that entire internet project. That's a pretty significant vulnerability. And of course they set it up with ways that the sort of people that are vetoed with those sort of all powerful ring bearer powers come from at least some sort of trust-based background and they are diverse in terms of geographic background and you know ideologies and all the rest of it but it's still it's a terrifying. real vulnerability right yeah. so i think the, the first big difference there is that the decentralized internet does not have that single point of failure and we can talk about the same thing with yeah. cryptocurrencies you don't have a central banker that can change the rules the rules are part of yeah. the network as a whole and at the same exactly. time, the decentralized internet isn't vulnerable to or isn't susceptible to top-down regulation that can then break it. Because that is, of course, the other issue that I spoke about earlier. The internet that we've got right now is vulnerable to be broken up by top-down regulation. So a particular government can put up a firewall that stops all people within their jurisdiction from accessing certain websites. Or if you're in the EU, it can stop you from accessing certain words that have been put into drop-down filters, for example. So it can be censored from above. So there's sort of a single point of failure and perhaps a single point of control, which we can now theoretically avoid with the blockchain. And that's what I did want to ask you, how immune to regulation is the system that you're involved with building? And what are the potential points that could become points of failure if we don't get them right this time around? All right, um, a great question. Uh, so the, the traditional internet, as you said, there are a very small number of key holders. There's also ICANN, which is a private corporation in the United States. Um, and then, you know, there, there's the hub and spoke model for mm. the rest of the infrastructure. Um, the DNS system always gets nailed. And if your internet connection goes down, it's probably because of the DDoS attack, which is attacking the DNS system. The DNS system is what you use to, um, to get an IP address so that you can actually contact another computer um, when you type, say, Google.com or something like that. If your DNS is not working, you can't find anybody. 
and you're certainly not going to remember their IP address. Loading breaks. Um, now, uh, the, the type of system that we're working on is peer-to-peer, -peer, right? So instead of a hub-and-spoke model, on a, at a certain level, everybody is in, on exactly the same footing. So you will run an app or one of our so-called service nodes, which essentially run a whole bunch of blockchains, um, or sort of anything else that connects to, um, to that system. So we've got uh, libraries that developers can use so they can basically plug into what we've built, we, we've built and make stuff with it. Um, all of these systems, all these pieces work the same way. Um, they'll kind of wake up and go, all right, all right, where's some peers? And look around for any, any, any peers that are on the network. Um, they'll connect to a peer and then ask that peer for a list of their peers. Um, and over a shortish time, we'll build up a list of, of other computers to connect to. Um, the system doesn't require um, any hub to be sort of relaying the messages between the peers and therefore potentially being um, able to act as a some kind of a controller, you know, screening certain peers out or um, giving information to certain peers earlier than other peers or any other kinds of unfair advantages that, that these sorts of hub and spoke systems create. No hierarchy. Um, yeah, when it's when it's peer to peer, it's really, really hard to mess with that stuff. It's not impossible. Um, you can for example, try things like flooding the peer-to-peer -peer network with all kinds of messages, and that can overwhelm certain parties. Um, on the other hand, like with anything, there are ways to deal with that. Um, also, those don't tend to affect um, sort of your single target. They just affect everybody. So it's a little bit like an atomic bomb. Like people don't use them for a reason. They just like to hold them over people's heads as threats. Anyway, they're not that da dangerous, for the, just for the record. <laughs> Atomic bombs are dangerous. GOS <laughs> yeah. and not that dangerous. Um, okay, so uh, that's that's the sort of architectural perspective. Um, but the other the other aspect, which is just as important, is um, how you know the information you're getting is true. So, for example, um, you know, I can I can type Google.com in my browser, and it will use the DNS system to um, find an IP address. And then if I'm still skeptical that I've really gotten to Google's search page, I can go and click on the little thing for thing, little icon in, the, in, in, in the, the search bar. And it will tell me that there's a digital certificate, uh, which is you know correctly signed, it hasn't expired. And there'll be some, obviously some other third party out there that is testifying that um, I have indeed reached google.com and not some impersonator. Um, and then of course you gotta go, well, I don't know these third parties, are they reputable? I have no way to tell whether their incentives are malicious or not. Um, it's, it's, it, there's, no, the, the, there's no way you can actually get to the bottom of that. Um, it's, just, it's just trust-laden by design. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't work because it does work. You'll go to Google and you search for things and you know, basically always fine. Um, but in other areas, this type of stuff goes badly wrong. And it's important for a decentralized internet to have a way of dealing with this type of thing that doesn't require trust. Um, otherwise, the, the problem actually gets worse, right? Because if instead of 
a small number of gatekeepers, you're connecting to literally anybody on your peer-to-peer network who could start up a peer with very little effort and then just feed you bogus information. Um, you need another system that is robust against malicious activity. Um, now, what we use is a, a way of proving to yourself locally the truthfulness of the information that your peers are giving you. Um, interestingly, this goes back to the original design paper for Bitcoin. It's a thing called an SPV proof. Anybody who wants to check that out, bitcoin.org slash bitcoin.pdf will help you out. Uh, but in a nutshell, um, you want some information, you ask, say, 10 different peers what the answer to that information is, and then uh, they will send a response you can um, then get all the responses and do a little check to see whether they're all the same. Uh, if they're divergences, then you can essentially start either asking more peers and see if you just get a, a greater majority of the same response until you're sure enough. Or you can look at what the divergences are. Um, for example, maybe, um, maybe there is one alternative story um, and maybe 20% of your peers are all telling the same story. Alternatively, maybe there's a, a, an overwhelming majority and then like a whole bunch of noise where all the other peers are telling you like completely diverging things from each other. Um, so you can quite quickly work out the, the, the distribution of responses. Um, and I'm talking as a designer, not as a user, right? Software will do all of this work. But one way or another, um, it's simple enough to calculate the probability of the answer you're getting not being the truth. And if you need, if a lot is riding on the answer, maybe a lot of money or something else that's at stake, you can just ask more peers. Just keep asking. It's not expensive. In fact, it's free. You can just just do a big request. And when you're sure, then you're sure. Um, yeah, that's a sort of a quick sketch of how our thing works. It's called XRouter. It's kind of like a blockchain router. So the thing you have in your house that's routing traffic to your computer, um, ours is a little bit like that, but also not at all like that in the actual mechanics. <laughs> it helps you figure out what's going on, on on different systems. Okay, great. So you're talking really there about consensus or tapping into what's hopefully the, the wisdom of crowds in order to, to get to a, a type of consensus as to zero in on what the truth is and what, what is real without having to rely on a, on a single intermediary as being that arbiter of truth, which is, of course, what the internet at the yes. moment is devolving into, whereby we're sort of setting up reality yes. czars and, you know, single points of truth as to what's true and what's not, which is almost a little bit medieval, yes. right? So I suppose the question and then yeah. becomes on the, on the danger side, particularly for people that aren't seriously clued up onto how these systems work, because we understand, of course, that consensus is not that far removed from democracy, but democracy obviously has some problems in the real world in terms of things like tyranny of the majority and what if everyone is actually wrong. So there's a sort of fine line between the wisdom of crowds, which is proven to be quite good for making predictions on things like marketplaces and bets, but there's also that other side, which is more like the madness of crowds, which leads to stupid things like bubbles or, or voting tyrants into democracies. So how is Absolutely. this system more resilient than our real world systems? So I think most people listening to this understand the limits of 
the crowd itself? Or are we talking here about a digital crowd, which is very different to a fallible human crowd? Maybe you can just explain that, that difference from a governance perspective. Great question. Um, all right, well, I'll, I'll start with the idea of a, um, the wisdom of crowds. That's a wonderful, a wonderful piece of theory. And it, it works really well in, in actual existing prediction markets like Augur. Um, it's premised on something quite specific, though. Um, it's not the same as everybody voting for the wrong politician. Um, the wisdom of crowds only works when the voters can't communicate. If you can't set that up in advance, you've got a mess, right? Great um, point. It's, it's imperative that each individual voter is kind of voting on their own. Um, now, the way that Augur, for example, decentralized prediction market works is that it makes you put your money where your mouth is. Um, and that really, really is clever because there's nothing stopping you and I having a chat and then voting. And they'll, they'll, ne they'll never have a system that can achieve that because we'll just chat over a an app they're not responsible for and they can't control. But uh, if you're going to vote, it's going to cost you. And if you're right, you make profit. And if you're wrong, you lose money, right? Um, and that really, really works. It makes people actually do their homework. And as a system, even though individual people can be quite silly, it's, it can be uncannily accurate. Um, however, what I was describing earlier with XRouter it's a very different system to a wisdom of crowds type of system. Um, it's not designed to do the same thing. I personally am very hopeful for the future of, of decentralized prediction markets. I think that they're an amazing tool. And um, it's just kind of one of these things where it's a matter of time before more people realize how useful they are and they start using them for all kinds of cool stuff. Um, mm. They could be so, so profound in... The, the sort of most unexpectedly broad areas like um, validating empirical research or um, deciding who's best at leading for a given project or, I don't know, term of office or something like that. Um, they're, they're like uncannily good when, when you have your money like where your mouth is, it really works. Um, of course, it doesn't solve everything. There are a lot of things that it, it'll, it'll fail horribly at. Um, sometimes you don't care only about the truth of something. Um, you just, you also care about what most people want. Um, and not all questions are about the truth. Some of them are just about what people want. And their desire could just be valid. Now for that, you don't need a prediction market. Um, you need a way of voting that is not prone to abuses like our current system, our current political system. Horrible mess. Who are we trusting that the votes are fairly counted and that there are no nasty non-existent deceased voters or whatever else. Um, that's a whole separate problem and um, <laughs> it's reasonably achievable. Um, you need a, a very good anti-civil mechanism. So this is a way of preventing um, people impersonating others or creating many identities. Um, and then you need something like a blockchain to log the votes because once something's on a blockchain, no one's going to be able to erase it. And that's a really nice voice counter when it comes to it. Amazing. But if you don't solve the civil problem first, then you've got nothing at all in terms of a voting system. Um, yeah, I, I guess there's other, uh, one other really important thing for me when it comes to these slightly broader questions about how do we coordinate mm -hmm. action, um, which is the efficiency of, of, of systems. Um, 
peer-to-peer -peer systems especially fall over very easily if you don't optimize them they just die of of communication overload uh, there's one of these mythical laws of teamwork uh, which is that you can't really get much done if you have a team larger than eight and as soon as you do the communication overhead is, is too great and people just start dropping off they're not up to speed and you start having to have managers or something and then you've got a bureaucracy and it's, it's the same hell that we're trying to managers managing managers yeah all the way down turtles and managers all the way down yes. the pyramid yeah, we don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't want, want that so, so how do you avoid that? How do you avoid the cancer of bureaucracy in these systems? With, well, it's clever. It's one of my favorite areas. I love it so much. Um, I'll give an example from, from Bitcoin because it's, I think it's really insightful. Um, it's extraordinary that Bitcoin works at all, right? There are thousands and thousands of people running Bitcoin Core, which is a freaking pain to run. I don't know if you've tried, but it's a pain. It takes up an enormous Long amount ago. of space. It crashes <laughs> if there are issues. It's, it's nasty. Uh, I run it, but I don't like running it. Um, now, uh, this thing would die if everyone had to check with everybody else um, what they thought about a given transaction or something like that. Um, there's so many details in a transaction. There are a lot of facts to review. If you're validating a transaction, there's a lot of checks. There's a lot going on there. Um, now, instead of requiring the entire network to check all the things in the transaction and then, you know, confirm that it's fine. Um, firstly, uh, well, I'll get to the main principle. It, what you need to do is find something fundamental, something that, that like a, a mechanism that's fundamental to the entire system and control only that. So you're now validating one data point among like thousands and thousands. Um, and provided that everything else kind of ultimately has to map down to that one. Well, maybe maybe you could pick three in a different system or a small number of things that needed to be validated. And provided everything essentially boils down to that, then you can scale, right? Because you've got very little intercommunication that's required. Um, I'm going to get away from that for the moment. That's Bitcoin's genius. Um, because what happens after that, when you've got more complex problems to solve, is a whole lot more complicated. Um, the best example, in fact, by a very long way, the best example of this type of coordination problem solving is a thing called Avalanche. Avalanche is a, the newest consensus protocol. There are only three. And for the Bitcoin enthusiasts out there, I'll tell you that proof of, proof of work and proof of stake are not consensus protocols. Those are anti-civil mechanisms, which goes back to the voting thing mm. I mentioned earlier. Um, consensus protocols are a sort of a collection of rules about how peers kind of come to believe the same thing. Now in Bitcoin, it, it's the longest chain rule, so-called. So at an even point, um, you'll have a copy of the blockchain, I'll have a copy of the blockchain, and everyone's like waiting for the next block. Someone on the network's gonna solve that block. No one knows who. Um, and so they're all listening, right? And so if, if there's a new block, everyone wants it immediately. Um, there's a very simple way in which Bitcoin is able to tell whether this new candidate block is the latest block or just some other nonsense that anyone came up with and, and broadcast to the network. Um, it's down to, it's not funny, but the hash of that block being a low number that's lower than anything else they've found and lower than a certain threshold. Um, 
I'm not sure how into detail I need to get about this, but uh, basically you can create a kind of a fingerprint of some data. That fingerprint is called a cryptographic hash. Um, a hash is just a really, really long bunch of numbers and letters. Um, it's actually a number. We just use the letters as, uh, as if they're numbers. Um, and then uh, essentially people are going to be number crunching as fast as they can when they're trying to mine the next block. And whoever comes up with a solution to the next block where the hash of that block happens to be a really no, low number. Like the simplest the valid solution, right? I mean, like just to yeah. really oversimplify the concept, simple. yeah. <laughs> so the simplest simple possible, actually ingenious. correct solution. There you go. That's the, yeah, it's, that's the one that gets it's the, the simplicity system. that makes it work. It's, it's, mm. why, it's why that thing can actually scale, why you can have, you know, five to 8,000 different nodes running around the world when the system is healthy. Um, anyway, uh, so I was talking about consensus protocols. That's how Bitcoin works. Avalanche is massively more interesting yeah. and complicated. So where, where are we headed? That's uh, try explain that one maybe in a bit more detail because that's what that's, that's what matters for building this out beyond just merely sort of magic internet money into something that could become the next infrastructure yeah. system for all of us. Yeah. So Avalanche is um, it builds on it starts with something quite simple. Um, which is a simple rule for deciding, say, red or blue, or any other type of decision. So um, let's say that there are a couple of peers in a network that think the answer is blue, and a couple of other peers that think the answer is red. Um, the idea is each peer will sample a small number of its, of its, of its peers, not the whole network, just a small number. Um, and if a certain majority of that sample thinks that the answer is red, then it'll either stay red if it's red already, or if it's blue, it'll change to red. Um, now, that sounds a bit sort of simplistic, because it is, but there's some cool proofs, some really, really elegant stuff that proves a property known as metastability. Metastability more or less amounts to um, the fact that you can kind of quite reliably and truthfully come to um, the correct view on whether the answer is blue or red by only sampling a small number of nodes given the, the rules that they, they, they implement. Um, that's sort of level one of several levels that basically build up from there um, to Avalanche, which is this kind of extraordinary protocol. Um, it's faster at reaching decisions than um, the Visa and MasterCard networks are at processing card transactions and it scales. So you won't find that the blockchain takes up many terabytes over a few years. It's little. Yeah, because uh, that's the, the challenge, of course, with the, the Bitcoin protocol, that it's at scale, it does slow down yeah. unless you build other things into it, just to oversimplify that problem. But it has to be yeah, solved if we want to use to those networks for, for more complicated bits of data other than sort of financial transactions. And even then it can be yeah. quite cumbersome. So yeah, so yeah, simplifying the, the, the sharing. Of, sorry. Yeah, I, I think the biggest advantage of Avalanche is it's the first thing out there that actually scales in terms of the number of peers that can be around to validate. Um, so it's a little bit like being a Bitcoin miner, um, but anyone can do that. It just, it just scales in that respect, which is extraordinary, right? Um, in the history of consensus protocols, you could achieve a large number of, um, well, largish number of validators if 
you knew them all in advance, which meant essentially building some kind of nasty registrar where you have to sort of make people sign up to your protocol before they participate. So it's a, it's a closed protocol, it's not an open protocol, but it can work quickly and you know somewhat scalable. Bitcoin came along and one of the real advantages of Bitcoin is that it's an open protocol. You don't need to sign up. That's one of the important reasons why it's so decentralized. Um, you just run the software. You don't need anyone's permission. There's no controller, you just run it. Nonetheless, it arrives faultlessly at a record of all the correct transactions with no nonsense. Now, Avalanche um, allows many more validators than Bitcoin is capable of. Um, so it's in a sense is more decentralized than the Bitcoin protocol. Um, and it doesn't require your owning literally a data center of mining equipment. You just run it on your phone or your computer or something. Um, this is this is incredible, right? Can you think of a more inclusive thing than that as say basic architecture of, of the decentralized internet? You could fire up a lightweight thing on your phone and start validating, start you know participating as a full citizen of this network. And then that allows you to learn all kinds of truths in really, really powerful ways um, that until literally September last year were just not possible because that's when, it, that's when it launched. That's really impressive. So I suppose the question is, these are sort of digital governance systems. They've been based a lot on game theory and trying to optimize systems and governance without having to rely on fallible human beings. So to try and automate human amorality. But it's very much in the digital layer of our lives. How do these principles roll out to our physical world and to the actual governments that we have to deal with as physical bodies and as human beings? And conversely, how can the physical governments that we have interfere with these systems or can they not? Because that's what we're really wanting to develop, right? Something that is borderless and permissionless and that doesn't have a single point of external failure either than a single point of internal failure. So I suppose to ask that question a different way, is this, could this system be broken the same way that regulators are currently trying to break the internet that we have? Or do these systems, in theory, break the governments that we have? Because ultimately, you kind of need one king, right? There's one <laughs> to, to, to rule them, them all. What is What becomes the, the superior set of governance in your perspective? That might be a bit of a hard question to answer, but to simplify it, like mm. how can physical governments interfere with the systems and how do these decentralized systems interfere with physical governments as the ones that we currently vote for or don't vote for, depending on how democratic our societies are? Well, most blockchains, unfortunately, aren't very secure or create these sort of oligopolies. Um, however, some systems are properly open and very secure and are about as immune to bureaucratic meddling as you can imagine. Um, Bitcoin is one of the ones that you really will struggle to break. Um, Avalanche, unsurprisingly, is also a basically completely unbreakable system. It is quite young. It, all of these technologies need to mature because having a beautiful idea with a formal proof in an academic paper is an amazing accomplishment. Building that out of code is another huge accomplishment and it takes many iterations before you can, before you can get there so i would say mature avalanche will be the most ideal bulletproof scalable thing out there for, for building this stuff now 
just to touch briefly on the systems that aren't like that, because um, people are getting excited about a lot of things now that we're in a bull market. Um, there's a thing called DPoS, Delegated Proof of Stake, and a lot of systems use it. Um, for example, there's a project known as Cosmos. They run a thing called Tendermint, which is a delegated proof of stake system. Um, there's another project called Polkadot, which are more or less the same, not quite the same, but they're mastered more or less the same thing. Um, these systems have a inevitably have this kind of hub and spoke architecture, and the validator sets are small. They cannot cope, those protocols can't cope with a large number of validators, which means you have oligopoly, which means, well, those people can be nailed, right? If you can go and find out the small number of people who are, you know, capable of validating on the network and you take out sort of a large proportion of them, then uh, what you're going to do to the network? Gonna, it's a vulnerability, it's a really like having an army base, like having a digital Pearl Harbor. It's just waiting there yes. for, for someone to, exactly. to take it out. Yeah. yeah or to regulate it. That's, not what, <laughs> that's obviously not what we want. That's not what the decentralized internet needs in order to survive. It needs um, to be anti-fragile. Exactly. exactly. It, needs it, it needs to be that anybody from their browser is validating the network. And that's sort of at least this analogous way to what I was describing earlier. Everybody needs to be a full citizen of the internet. Otherwise, it's going to get smashed up. Um, also, otherwise, you have to trust people. I don't want to trust the uh, fewer than 20 block of validators on EOS, for example, to play nice because they don't. Some of them are nasty and some of them make really stupid mistakes. <laughs> it makes it makes it. A huge mess. Well, any human being given enough power is corruptible, right? So that's that's yeah. that's the problem with any government system we've managed to devise as human beings, whether it's a democracy exactly. or a monarchy. We give a lot of power to individual people, and either we try and select them, whether through birth or the vote, we still end up with creating a vulnerability, and that's what we want to try and optimize against if we want to have yeah. a more anti-fragile world. Exactly. So we need properly decentralized tech that scales in terms of its its speed, but also in terms of the number of participants it can handle. Um, and that tech is here. It's, it's a really amazing moment to be alive. If you think of, you know, the last 5,000 years of history, political history is a big bunch of horribleness. It's just, it's just nasty all the way along. How many really, really good leaders can you think of? Can you name five? Corporate all public sector, exactly. Not many. Not so few of them. It's, it's, it's lamentable. It's such a mess. But we're in a position now where um, we can replace trust-laden systems with trustless systems. Uh, we can decentralize instead of relying on these third parties, these leaders. Um, now, obviously, I'm being quite kind of idealistic throughout this entire discussion. It, it's one thing to have a new protocol that exists and works. It's another thing to build um, you know, something that approximates, approximates the way the government works now, at least in terms of service provision and all the many bits and pieces that need to fall into place. That's a huge project. Um, but it's a nice place to segue into what's going to happen. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's, I'm, I'm pretty idealistic, as I was saying. 
I'm a little bit too impatient to be like, oh, we can go through this really long, painful process of trying to coax governments to adopt this technology and reform because it's extraordinarily expensive. They'll probably do it wrong for about 50 years, if not, you know, a century. And I don't like them anyway. I would much prefer to sort of smash it up or maybe not to bother smashing it up, but just to build something else that works better and just allow it to flourish. Um, so I guess uh, that that assumes already that these systems are more or less unbreakable by governments and regulators. It assumes already that we can solve the coordination problems um, that come up in a society, and there are hundreds of thousands of them, challenging thing to do. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're patient, I guess, and you don't try to solve all the problems at once and solve one big thing at a time, then the solutions that are possible now are unbreakable, are unassailable by governments. And the governments, I think, um, would be very lucky if anyone is, you know, kind enough or not idealistic enough to actually work with them. Um, I don't know about you, but I hate working with bureaucrats. It's, it's horrible. It wastes yeah. so much of your time. It's incredibly expensive and it's boring. So <laughs> I kind of hope everything just Dead changes. Dead weight lasts all the way down. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just, not. I want a big change. I want exciting change. Change that doesn't have the friction and the technical debt and the culture of bureaucracy. I want something really fresh and really different. And it's possible now. Yeah, I suppose my thesis really is that the, the current internet that we have and the current governments that we have, government breaks internet because it is able to do so. And we've seen many, many examples of that. But looking a bit further ahead, it appears to me from where I sit and from the research I've done and the people that I've spoken to and the sort of dots that I've connected that the decentralized internet breaks the government. And I'm not entirely certain that we get to have both. So I've written and spoken about that quite a lot this year, made a lot of enemies on all sides of the various different divides, but I'm not sure the democratic nation state gets to survive disruption from the decentralized unregulatable internet, because it's not just the internet layer, it's also the financial layer. So we've tried not to speak too much about Bitcoin because it is such a fraught subject and it does induce a lot of eye rolling from a lot of a lot of people. Oh, we want to take this, this conversation <laughs> more into the, the, the governance space, because that's what it actually is. You know, the, the Bitcoin and the blockchain behind it is a new system of governance, the system of governance that doesn't require a central authority. And that's solving the problem of the central banker and the monopoly on fiat money, but a lot of what you've been speaking about today is solving similar problems, but for different forms of governance, whether those are corporate forms of governance or state forms of governance. And if the internet that we know has replaced a lot of middlemen, not with, with other middlemen, to be perfectly honest, so the internet took away third parties and trusted players and replaced them with platforms. The internet that we're building now, the decentralized internet is, be, is more about replacing policymakers with protocols. So it's a very yeah. different problem that's being solved. Would you agree with that? Because I, I just don't see a way that the decentralized internet is going to be able to be compatible with the very centralized bureaucracies that we have. And we can probably end up with a world where you can kind of pick one or the other, but I don't, mm. I don't see them living very neatly together, not based on the, the very different incentives in play with those two very, very different games. Maybe you've got a different solution since your work does 
relate into building bridges between different decentralized networks. Maybe you've got some ideas on how to build bridges between the centralized real world and the decentralized virtual world. But I haven't yet been able to get my head around how the work you're doing does not break the government nation state as we know it. Um, well, you're right that what we're doing allows anybody or anything to join us and use it. it it's an open protocol in the way, in the same way that internet protocol is, is open. Um, however, you can't make people. Um, if someone really, really thinks that, you know, the, the government is great and they just want it to keep doing what it does, then they're going to have a fight. Um, and if they want to fight, they, they're going to fight, you know? Um, so I guess my, my expectation is the next, 50 to 100 years are going to be full of really, really weird conflicts. Um, mm. th there are going to be so many coordination problems when we're sort of halfway through. Yeah, um, the that's the messy part. Two worlds, between two worlds, yeah, neither here it's, nor there. Yeah. It's a nasty mess, but I'm, I'm hoping that at least the bureaucracies of the world will see the light and go, oh, well, firstly, we can't smash this up. We can't regulate against this. Uh, how, do we just, how do we just join it and not lose... Everything. How do we change ourselves to fit in with what we can't destroy, which yeah. is which does require yeah. an, a, a radical change. But I suppose then again, even the nation state is quite a, a modern invention. So no human systems of governance are immortal. And just like we ourselves yeah. have to reinvent our, our physical selves as individuals, the, the sort of systems of governance that we have are probably overdue for some sort of a change. I mean, we've tried various different ways of managing these nation states from the capitalists to the communist and everything in between. And none of them have been satisfactory for a majority. This is why the world is, is so fraught at the moment. So probably trying to try yeah. something else. And I'm sure there's going to be more problems that we haven't thought of yet. Even the clever people that are working on these projects, we don't know until we try them. And of course, human beings like to find loopholes in systems in order to try and game yeah. those systems. So the goal, of course, is to make the system that is at least less gameable. And the more we automate, the more we replace policymakers with protocols, the less of those loopholes there are. Of course, the risk then yeah. becomes building a system that bakes in problems that can't then be changed by, <laughs> by human Woo. beings. So there's always, there's always a catch, right? So this is a, this is a very That's big conversation. That's a lesson that the blockchain space has learned already. Um, yeah. The thing about smart contracts is you really do want to keep enhancing them. Um, software is never really finished these days. You know? and, and so um, already there are systems in place to 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 help projects migrate from you know version one to version two they're always about um just direct democratic voting um so you know uh you can build a cool a cool dao a decentralized autonomous organization on ethereum and if you want to introduce a new feature then a majority of people have to be happy with that um and they vote on the chain and um sometimes the vote amounts to just pointing your whatever you're using toward the new contract instead of the old one the old one will still exist it will still function it's just that people it could technically fork it. instead of disappear which does already give us more choice than a democracy would in yeah, theory although Not that can also, in practice in the real world that can also generate extra coordination problems because now we've got two separate systems that function differently and people are on the different ones and meanwhile they might be shared 
physical resources that are being sort of not coordinated now because the two mm. systems are trying to do the same job or a similar job. Uh, so this is a huge, huge thing. Um, in fact, maybe it's the biggest problem because um, yeah. it's one it's one thing to go, okay, we've got these cool tools to help people coordinate, but unless you've also built a system to change coordination systems, then what have you got? You've just got more coordination systems. You look chaos. <laughs> um, but it's not, as I said, this is not new. This is, a, this is something where there are systems that work quite well. Um, I think my biggest concerns are um, avoiding things like mob rule. Ideally, you'd want systems that maximize liberty so that minority groups can still live the way they want to live. Um, but, you know, with these sorts of, with the current generation of, I guess we should call them upgrade systems for protocols, um, that's not really how it works. Uh, it, it can work like that in some cases. Um, things like hard forks on blockchains allow minorities to just rage quit, to quit the word people use these days and just go off on their own and do things the way they want to do them. And that's fine. They have their own blockchain, no problem. But obviously this is this is an interestingly comfy situation. It's not comfy where you're sharing the same natural resources. You, you've got the, a shared yeah. water supply and you're from different cultures and you want to upgrade, but then like the minority just gets nailed, right? You really want to avoid that type of thing. The NIMBYs, the digital so, NIMBYs. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But, but that's the challenge, right? So I mean, like these are systems that have been experimented with in the digital sphere. They're solving a huge stack of problems, so we shouldn't discount that at all. But there are still, the biggest challenges still are yet to be solved and in all likelihood probably won't be solved because we are fallible human beings. And those are the, the real world problems, which always become more messy the closer we get to individual human relationships and i think i think that's probably an interesting interesting sort of full circle to the story like we're trying to solve a lot of problems that we have with our current systems and we can go so far but every sort of system has the seeds to its own destruction but that's the the curve of progress right we have to keep on solving the problems that's that true. we make doing it a little bit better with every iteration. So it's not a goal. It's not a single utopia we're heading towards, a perfected no. decentralized no, internet no. or decentralized world. It's a continual no, work in progress. Right. Yeah, that's that's a everything. good interim goal. I, I can definitely get behind yeah. that. So let's do that first and then worry about how to, how to protect minority forking rights in a decentralized protocol governed world. <laughs> They're, they're pretty good ways to do this already, I guess, uh, at least in theory. Um, so, for example, yeah. prediction markets are really useful. Um, when when the, it's a question of the truth of something, it's really silly to just vote and see what the majority thinks. Um, yeah. Really, really great to use a prediction market for that. And then you can have a pretty good guide to the truth of the matter. And then, if need be, afterwards, you can vote that in or something. I don't even know. Ideally not. Ideally you just find the truth and then that automatically is what you what you go by. Um, so, you know, in theory, in principle, and it's absolutely achievable in code, um, you could build a system where if something is a matter of determining the facts, you just, you just have a prediction market. You go for it. Start a market. Let the outcome emerge. And there you go. Um, and that, that clears up a lot of the trouble. Um, a lot of the trouble with the current internet, yeah, absolutely, because that's yeah, that's but where also the with the kind of, but also with these sort of awkward coordination problems where you know minority groups can get bulldozed if you're just going with direct democ 
democracy or voting in general. Um, but if you if you if you do something like a prediction market in in the places where it's needed, you can avoid a whole lot of mob rule. But of course, that's not going to solve everything because fundamentally, that old adage where you know you, you get the leaders you deserve um, translates in this context to you get the protocols you deserve. Um, and if people make bad decisions one after another, you'll end up in a nightmare. Um, so I guess to me, like. You, this is not something you can create a, a true utopia for, with. You, you can ra radically remove certain systemic issues we have today, but at bottom, I'm going to guess we need something that's um, outside of protocols and systems and design. I think we need a, a culture that is consistent internally. We need something where the world makes sense in generally overlapping ways to the people in a society. And if we don't have that, no software is going to save you. You're just going to end up in more chaos because you'll have 2,000 different governance protocols all basically making a huge snarl up between each other. And nobody wants that. You say that no protocol is going to save you, but no existing government will save you either from those same problems. Yeah. So, so it's not, it's not oh, yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. to take anything away from, from what we've been saying. No, no. But, um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You're going to be radically better off with protocols than with bureaucracies. With people, but with fallible people in charge. Yes, because we've got to, yeah. the, there's reasons that we made these problems in the first place. So, but that's, that's basically been the human project, right? We have made life more complicated for ourselves. And this is what distinguishes us from a lot of, a lot of other species out there. We have done a very good job of making things as complicated as possible. And that's both the, the challenge and the, the opportunity to, to deal with it. Well, maybe we've come full circle here. You were talking about balkanization in the beginning. Um, I think there's certain ways in which that is amazingly good news. I think if we don't have nation state size objects anymore, if, or far fewer of them, if, um, if we have a situation where there are smaller groups, then the coordination problems are simpler. Um, there's a greater likelihood that everyone will have a more similar culture. Therefore, you know, more similar ways of seeing things, less trouble coming to agreements about stuff. Um, that's an amazing way to just get a head start against anything bigger or more complicated. And uh, things with head starts tend to do pretty well. So I'm going to guess that um, in at least a lot of cases, people or groups of people that implement decentralized governance save themselves like 80% of the money just running the show. And if there's smaller groups, more cohesive, less trouble, less friction, simpler systems, takes less time to design, they could do very well. Mm. And those things that do well will have, you know, more wealth and more resources and better ideas and other people will copy them. And it doesn't mean we won't have conf conflicts, but it does mean that the things that work are like, you know, quite likely to, to keep working and to, to make more of themselves. Well, so, that, uh, that is the thing, right? So if you want to maximize freedom, you actually have to maximize choice. And to maximize choice, you can't be building for a homogenous, utopian, singular entity. Any sort of singularity yeah. is fundamentally 
anti-maximizing for freedom or for choice. So there is something to be said yeah. about sort of marginal returns to freedom if you actually want to maximize freedom, ironically, which requires some forms of, yeah. of borders and some forms of exits from whatever the, the decentralized yeah. pro consensus protocol is. There has to be an opportunity for dissenters to dissent. Otherwise, any system, yeah. no matter how wonderfully it has been designed, will sort of devolve into, if nothing worse, at least stagnation. So. We've got to always yeah, make room absolutely. for for the dissensus of whatever comes next. That's probably a good yeah. point to leave it for today, unless you've got some other final comments on everything that we've been covering today. If we haven't confused everybody. I have this thing that I keep also. coming back to. Uh, and it's, it's so high level compared to the rest of the discussion, but um, I'm increasingly thinking, what the hell were people thinking during the French Revolution. Why were these ideas, these huge, beautiful ideas, not bounded? Liberty, fraternity, etc. Why, why were they so unbounded? No one designs a system with, without um, kind of limits on a principle, unless they want to create an enormous mess. Um, and I don't think they were trying to create a mess. So it's, it bothers me a lot. Um, you can't look at any current system that needs to thrive in an adversarial environment without seeing a system with boundaries. Um, every cell in your body has a cell wall and it's really, really actively policing what gets inside that cell wall and what gets out. Um, there are protocols and protocols and protocols on that cell wall. And man, if those go wrong, you have huge problems. Either you get diseases or you get you know, cancer or it's, it's really nasty. Um, and I think actually from a systems perspective, um, if there's a future for these types of modern era ideals that I think we all cherish, it can only be within more clearly established boundaries. There needs to be a way of deciding where one thing ends and the next thing begins. Otherwise, people kind of want absolute freedom and don't get it. They just get pain instead. And I guess like this, this ties into what I was saying about the organization potentially being a good thing, at least in some respects, um, where, you know, if, if you can just bound things geographically and bound things culturally, and the boundaries are porous, like a cell wall, right? And then they're not Trump's wall. They're a nice porous wall that has good protocols in it. Ideally. They're a choice between um, state A and state B. There's a, there's a flow there. Yeah. Maybe it's even a free market principle between these different groups and systems. Um, well, we I had that know, same but... conversation with our conversation about immigration and immigration um, with Gwen and Gwenya from the DA when she was talking about how having, it's not about not having borders, it's about having borders that have doors rather than like just a fence, right? So mm -hmm. it has a flow that you're yeah. able to enter and exit those doors, but you're still able to hold yeah. different states of nature on either side of that swing. So if that sort of analogy yeah. makes sense to what actually coming exactly back to what she was talking about with the block net, which is about interoperability between different chains, which are essentially sort of different digital states of, of nature. So perhaps what we really need is more yeah. door builders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Yeah. It's a boundary, but it's not a it's not a a wall that shuts everything up. You know, um, and with, without really well defined boundaries, I, I just don't see how any of this stuff's going to work. But I think a lot of people probably already already here. We're, we're way past the enlightenment these days, and uh, 
at least I'm hoping we are. I guess we'll see. Um, <laughs> maybe some people still hooked on that stuff entirely in the same in the same vein. But thank you so much. That was Arlen Colwick, and we are the Small Print. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.